The Bible reading for today is from Colossians 1, verses 3 to 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Ephorus, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the kingdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may ha have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My name is Adam. It's great to have you join us today. Whether you're joining us online or whether you're here with us on site, we're so glad that you could be here. You know, we are in week three of a sermon series that we've called How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people. Now, I'm not sure what your attitude is towards prayer. I'm not sure how your prayer life is going. But maybe like me, you would like some help to know how to pray. Now, we're not alone in this, thankfully. There was an occasion in Jesus' life when the disciples asked him, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I'm so glad that Jesus responded to their request, not by giving them a long list of techniques, not by giving them a, a thick manual to memorize, but rather by giving them a simple prayer to pray. And this prayer has become known as the Lord's Prayer. And it's this prayer that we're working through line by line in this series. Now, so far, we've discovered some important truths about the Lord's Prayer. We've discovered that it's short. It's two halves, six petitions, 57 words in the original language. It's also simple. It's simple enough for anyone to pray and to understand. I mean, it is for normal people like you and me. It's also a guide. When Jesus gave it to the disciples, he said, this is how you should pray. The Lord's Prayer shows us what to pray for and how we are to pray. And this is what we're doing in this series. We're learning from Jesus about how to pray. Now, so far, we've looked at how to approach God. In the very first line of the prayer, Jesus teaches us to approach God as our Father in heaven. God loves to hear our prayers. He wants to hear our prayers. Last week, we looked at how to approach prayer. And we saw that we begin with adoration, with praise, with worship. We look through the telescope to see the greatness and the goodness and the glory 
of God. This week, the title of the sermon is How to Change the World. How to Change the World. Doesn't sound very ambitious at all. Now, I wonder what you think about the power of prayer. I wonder if you think our prayers have the power to change things. I wonder if you think our prayers have the power to change the world. You know, I heard a a story this week, and I think it's almost certainly fictional, but it makes a good point. There was a bar owner in a small country town, and he wanted to extend his premises. He wanted to build a bigger bar. But a local church, I think it might have been a Baptist church, they were staunchly opposed to his plans. And they raised a vocal campaign with protests and petitions and press releases and passionate prayer meetings to make sure that this didn't happen. But nevertheless, the the bar owner, despite the uh, campaigning of the church, he received permission to extend his premises. The church members were bitterly disappointed until the week before the grand opening, when a lightning bolt struck the bar and burned it to the ground. The church were beside themselves with joy. Their prayers had been answered. And so the bar owner decided to sue the church on the grounds that they were ultimately responsible for the material demise of his livelihood, whether through direct or indirect means. Now suddenly, everyone in the church began to change their tune. They rose up as one to deny responsibility. Eventually, the matter landed in court, and the judge surveyed the brief, and he concluded this. He said, I don't know how I'm going to decide this. It appears that we have a bar owner who believes passionately in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation that does not. Now, what about you? What do you believe about the power of prayer? Do our prayers change things? Can our prayers change the world? If we're honest, we probably wonder often whether our feeble prayers really do have the power to make a difference in this world, whether they really do have the power to make a difference with the massive problems that we face. I mean, what do our prayers really do in the face of a terminal diagnosis or a terrorist attack or an unjust government or a virus, a loved one who wants nothing to do with God, the inexplicable cruelty of human trafficking and human slavery and a thousand other things. Do our prayers really have the power to change things? Can our prayers really change the world? This is the question that we are exploring today. And to explore this question, we're looking at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. The second thing that Jesus calls on us to pray for and to pray about. Now the truth is, this second petition, if we will properly understand it, and if we will pray it persistently, it really does have world-changing implications. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 10. He says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
The second thing that Jesus calls on us to pray for, after we have prayed for God's name to be glorified, it is for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to pray, your kingdom come? What are we actually asking for when we pray this petition? Now, the kingdom of God is a central theme in the Bible. In fact, many people would argue that the kingdom of God is the central theme in the Bible. You know, at Church Council at the moment, we are doing a course or a study before our meetings called God's Big Picture, tracing the storyline of the Bible. This course is actually available for free online, and I would encourage you to check it out. It's a brilliant resource. Now, the author of this book and and this course, he argues that all of the different parts of the Bible, they fit together under the theme of the kingdom of God. In other words, right from the beginning in Genesis 1, 1, all the way through to the end in Revelation 22, the Bible is telling a story about God and his kingdom. I mean, this petition, this second petition of the Lord's Prayer is a big deal. Now, probably the best definition of the kingdom of God that I've ever heard, it comes from a a scholar named Graham Goldsworthy, who's actually from Brisbane. And this is how Graham describes or defines the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. These are, according to Graham, the three things that define the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we see these three three things in the unfolding storyline of the Bible. I mean, the Bible begins with God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing, walking with God in the cool of the afternoon. It's a beautiful picture. But unfortunately, it doesn't last too long. By the third chapter of the Bible... We have God's people, Adam and Eve, and they have rebelled against God's rule. They've been expelled from God's place, and they no longer enjoy God's blessing. This is what theologians call the fall, the fracturing of our relationship to God. And the fallout of the fall has been catastrophic. It has fractured and broken everything else. To use the words of Leonard Cohen, there is a crack in everything. Now, God could have left it there. He could have left us to ourselves, but because God is good and gracious, He does not. In fact, God promises to make things right again. God promises to restore His kingdom on earth, to once again bring His people into His place and under His rule and blessing. And this is really what the rest of the Bible is all about. It begins almost immediately at the end of chapter 3 with a promise from God to send a saviour, a serpent crusher. It's given more detail with the promises that are given to a man named Abraham in Genesis 12. Promises to make his descendants into a great nation, God's people. To give him land, the promised land, God's place. And to once again make him be a blessing to all the nations. Now, these promises are partially fulfilled through the nation of Israel, who are Abraham's descendants. But they too, like Adam and Eve, they continually disobey God. 
They rebel against God and they come under God's just judgment. And this is why, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Old Testament can be pretty bleak. It's because it is essentially a story of our failure to obey God. It's a story of God's just judgment upon our sin. But, and it's important to realize this, the Old Testament is not just that. It's much, much more. Because in the midst of the mess and the brokenness, there is a note of hope and promise. To again use the words of Leonard Cohen, who went on to say, there is a crack in everything. But he said, but that's how the light gets in. See, though the Old Testament tells us about human failure, it tells us about the crack in everything. It also, more importantly, tells us about the grace of God. It tells us about the light that is coming. So the Old Testament is filled with promises about a coming Savior, about a promised King who would bring God's kingdom, who would fulfill all of God's promises. And we get to the end of the Old Testament and we're waiting on our tiptoes to see when this King will arrive. And this is why when Jesus Christ announces at the beginning of his public ministry, what we read in Mark chapter 1 just a moment ago, when he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. When Jesus announces this, we should sit up and take notice because it means the king has arrived. The kingdom has come. God's promises are about to be fulfilled. God's reign and rule has come to earth. Jesus brings the kingdom of God near to us. And this explains all that Jesus will go on to do and say. I mean, after Jesus makes this stunning announcement that the kingdom of God has come near, he goes on and he performs a series of miracles. And these miracles not only validate uh, that Jesus is God's king, they also give us a picture, a glimpse of what God's kingdom is like. I mean, Jesus goes on to give sight to the blind, to cause the lame to walk, to cleanse lepers, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to calm the storm. Now, these are not just party tricks from Jesus because he is the divine son of God. These are a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is like. This is a picture of God's coming kingdom. And it's not just Jesus' miracles that show us what the kingdom of God is like. It's also the way that Jesus lived and the way that Jesus treated other people. I mean, Jesus befriends prostitutes and outsiders. Jesus champions the powerless and the poor. Jesus welcomes women into his company. He gives them dignity and responsibility, which doesn't sound like much in our day, but it was revolutionary in his day. Jesus also unites those that the world divides. I mean, even in Jesus, a band of 12 disciples, you had Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Now, Matthew the tax collector, he did just that. He collected taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. Simon the zealot, he was passionately, deeply, zealously opposed to the payment of taxes to Rome. I mean, Matthew and Simon were ideological enemies. It's kind of like having someone from the Clive Palmer party and the Greens in your band of friends, totally opposite to one another. And yet in Jesus, they become brothers. And this is the kingdom of God coming near. 
Jesus also taught us about the kingdom of God. He told parables, stories, to show us what the kingdom of God is like. He taught us how we are to live in the kingdom of God. I mean, even the Lord's Prayer, it's part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus delivered that's all about life in God's kingdom, how we live in God's kingdom. Through all that he said and did and taught, Jesus was showing us the kingdom of God. He was showing us what it's like and how we can enter into it. And in fact, this is true even for his death on the cross. Now you might wonder, what kind of king dies as a common criminal? What kind of king allows himself to be executed like that? And the answer, a king who deeply loves his people and has dealt with their deepest problem. You see, the cross is not a tragic failure of a failed Messiah. No, the cross is actually our king's greatest victory. Because the king is dying in the place of rebels like us. The king is paying the penalty for our sin. The king is conquering the powers of darkness. The king is defeating our greatest enemy, death. The cross is the place of our king's greatest victory. And the empty tomb is evidence of his identity and his victory. That he really was who he said he was and he really did what he claimed he would do. See, through the sin-bearing death of Jesus and his life-giving resurrection, the king has made a way for us to enter into his kingdom. Jesus came from heaven to earth to bring God's kingdom near to us. Now, you might be wondering at this point, this is great, this is exciting, but what's happened? Why doesn't the world seem to have changed more drastically? Why are people still sick and hungry and divided and dying? I mean, yes, Jesus has made a monumental difference in our world. I mean, the impact of his life in our world is staggering. But why is there still so much pain and evil and hurt and suffering? Those are great questions. And it's really important to realize that when Jesus was on earth, he not only spoke about God's kingdom coming near, he also spoke about the fact that God's kingdom is still to come. It's still in the future. For example, on the night before he went to the cross, during the first Lord's Supper, this is what Jesus said to the disciples. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, the kingdom of God is still to come. It's still in the future. This also explains why Jesus told parables, stories about us waiting and watching and being ready for the kingdom of God. The message of these parables is essentially wake up, be alert, be ready because the kingdom of God is coming. Now, what's going on here? How can Jesus say that the kingdom of God, it has come and it is still to come? Well, this actually brings us to the tension that is at the heart of both the New Testament and the Christian life. This helps us to understand why the Christian life can sometimes be frustrating. 
And it's because we live in between two ages. We live between two monumental events. We live between the first coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God coming near to us, and we live in between the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God coming in all of its fullness. This is what theologians call the already but the not yet aspect of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God has already come in Jesus. We can already enter into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus. This is what we read in our reading from Colossians chapter 1 a moment ago in verse 16, where Paul wrote and he said, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. This is present tense. We are right now, we can enter into God's kingdom. We can right now become citizens of God's kingdom. But we do not yet enjoy God's kingdom in all its fullness. God's kingdom has not yet come in all of its fullness. This is why we read in the Bible, like in Revelation 21, that there is still a day to come when Christ returns, when tears are wiped away, when death is destroyed forever, when the old order passes away, when everything is made new, when heaven and earth are reunited, when God dwells with his people finally, fully and forever. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing forever. This is what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God. It has already come near in Jesus and it will one day come in all of its fullness. I love the way that Tony Payne summarizes this in his book, Prayer and the Voice of God. This is how he puts it. He says, The perspective of the New Testament is that, is that with the coming of Jesus, the promised kingdom of God has dawned in our world. The sun has crested on the horizon and its spreading rays are bringing light to the world. Membership of the kingdom is now open to all by repenting and putting your trust in Jesus. And some of the benefits of the kingdom, such as forgiveness of sins and receiving God's spirit, can now be enjoyed. Like a mustard seed that grows into a large flourishing plant, the kingdom is growing throughout the world. But the full light of day is not yet here, and it won't be here until Jesus comes again and God's universal kingdom is demonstrated to all. The kingdom of God has already come near in Jesus, and it will one day come in all of its fullness when he returns. Now, I realize that we have covered a lot of ground. I mean, we've basically done a flyover of, of kind of the, the sweep of the Bible. But this is really important background for us if we are going to properly understand what it means when we pray, your kingdom come. I mean, getting back to our questions from the start, do our prayers really change things? Can our prayers really change the world? The answer, if we're praying this petition, if we are praying, your kingdom come, the answer is yes. I mean, this is a prayer that will change the world because here is what we're asking from God. God, please bring your kingdom. Please unveil your glory, your goodness, your power for all to see. Make right all that is wrong in our world. Clean up the mess that we have made of your world. 
Rescue us from our slavery to sin, evil and death once and for all. Bring your reign of love and justice and peace forever. Your kingdom come. Now this is a prayer that will change the world because this is a prayer that God will answer. Because God has promised that he will do it. And this can bring us incredible comfort, especially when life in this world is incredibly difficult. Because when we pray this prayer, we are reminding ourselves that there is a day coming when everything will be made right, when everything sad will come untrue, when our faith will be made sight and the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. Your kingdom come. Now let me give you an example of what this looks like, of how this might change our lives. You know, on the 25th of July, 1993, the the St. James congregation in Cape Town, they were gathered together for their evening worship service when a hooded gunman came into the service and started firing at random into the congregation, shooting indiscriminately. Now, he almost instantly killed 11 people and seriously injured many others. Now, before the evening was over, one of the leaders of the church emerged from the mayhem and he made a statement that that ended up on world news. And this was the statement. He said, well, as Christians, we must live in this fallen world. We do so knowing that at the end, there is a new world coming when Jesus will be acknowledged to be king. The members of St. James seek no revenge and harbor no bitterness. We are content to leave justice in the hands of the Almighty who has appointed a day of judgment when all will have to give an account of their actions to him. The only way you can make a statement like that is to know that the King is coming and that he is just and he is good. And this leads us to the reality that though this is a petition, this is a prayer for the future, it's a prayer that we pray in the present. And it's a prayer that has implications for our present lives. I mean, God will one day finally and fully bring his kingdom and he will do it totally apart from our help. But this does not mean that we have no role to play. This doesn't mean that we kind of sit back in the meantime and just twiddle our thumbs. No, God graciously invites us to be part of what he is doing in the world. Remember, the kingdom of God has already come in Jesus. Jesus once described the kingdom of God as like a mustard seed. It begins as something tiny, a tiny seed, but then it grows into this massive, magnificent tree. The kingdom of God, in other words, is spreading. And this is what we see happening all around us and throughout history. The kingdom of God spreading throughout the world. And you and I are invited to play our part and to pray for its spread. In fact, this is what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come. We are praying for the spread of God's kingdom. We're saying, God, we want more and more people to enter into your kingdom to bow their knee to King Jesus. To use the words of Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, may the gospel bear fruit and spread throughout the world. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for more people to enter the kingdom. And so the question is, are are you praying that? Are you praying for more people to come under the reign and rule and blessing 
of Jesus. This is what we can and we should pray. When we pray your kingdom come, we're also praying for justice to be done. Now our world is a very unjust place, but God's kingdom is a kingdom of perfect justice. Psalm 97 actually says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. I mean, when God brings his kingdom in all of its fullness, there'll be no more oppression, no more injustice, no more exploitation. There'll be no more abuse, no more racism, no more greed, no more abortion. There will be an end to injustice. And when we pray your kingdom come, we are asking God to bring his kingdom, to end injustice, and we are joining in the struggle to fight for justice. Let me give you an example of what this has looked like in another part of the world. You know, soon after the fall of the communist regime in Russia, a pastor visited a church in Moscow. Now these believers, they had for so long, they'd had to worship in secret and they were now able to worship in public and the church uh, building was packed. And the pastor noticed a group of elderly women sitting on the front row. They were babushkas. They had the scarves on their head. And these women were singing passionately and deeply with all their heart. And the pastor asked the interpreter about these women, and the interpreter replied, he said, these are the women who prayed communism out of Russia. To pray your kingdom come is to pray for justice to be done. But it's not just to pray for others. It's not just to pray that others might enter the kingdom, that justice might be done. It's also to pray for ourselves to pray that we might be faithful subjects of King Jesus. Now, Augustine, the, the great church theologian, the great church father, he said that we should not pray, thy kingdom come, without saying, and let thy kingdom come deeper in me. Let thy kingdom go deeper in me. This is what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come. We pray that we might become more faithful, that we might become more obedient, that we might become more loving, that God's kingdom might go deeper in us, that our priorities might change, that our values might change, that our lives might change to reflect God's kingdom. We have been invited and enlisted by God to participate in what he's doing in the world, to be agents of his blessing, to be ministers of reconciliation, to be heralds of good news, to be carriers of his love. What an incredible privilege. Your life matters. You have purpose. God has called you for such a time as this. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel? After he has been raised from death and before he's ascended back into heaven, Jesus said to the disciples and he says to us, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What a stunning statement. Therefore, go and make disciples, make followers of all nations. This is our call. We, we are heralds of the good news that King Jesus is the king with authority over everything and he invites everyone to come to him. I heard someone compare this to, to a beautiful piece of music that is written by the greatest of composers. 
It's beautiful. It's a masterpiece. And this composer enlists an orchestra to play it. And you and I have been included in the orchestra to play this beautiful music before a watching world. We are called by God to be part of what He's doing in the world. Of course, we're going to play some wrong notes. We're going to play out of tune every now and again, but the composer is committed to us. He's for us. He's with us. This is what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 28 in the very last verse of the book. He says, And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Our king, the king with all authority, the king who loved us so much, he came from heaven to earth to lay down his life for us. That king has all authority. And that king is always with us. And that king is coming again. And this is what we pray when we pray, your kingdom come. We are saying, yes, Lord, bring it on. Bring on your revolution. Bring on your new world order. Reverse the effects of our sin. Restore broken humanity. Redeem everything that's been lost. Rule and reign without rival on earth as in heaven. And until that day, Lord, use us as well for your glory. Use us to see your kingdom come on earth, in Bray Park, in Joyner, in Warner, in Launton, in Strathpine, in Kashmir, in Eaton's Hill, in Debra, in Sanford, in our area, Lord. Use us to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we mean when we pray, your kingdom come. This is how we change the world. We ask God to do what only he can do. We ask God to do what he has promised he will do. So would you join me in praying this for us? For us as individuals and for us as a church to see the kingdom of God come among us and in us and through us and one day around us forevermore. Your kingdom come. This is a prayer that will change the world for good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have placed your Son and our Lord on the throne. Thank you that King Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And thank you that he is so loving, so gracious, so kind, that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The king stepped off his throne to go to a cross for you and for me. Lord, help us never to forget this truth. Help us to bow our knees and live our lives for the glory of your name. And Lord, some of us are here today and we have never bowed our knee to King Jesus. We've never recognized his authority, his reign, his rule and what he's done for us. And Lord, some of us today need to do that. And some of us right now just want to pray, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you that you died on the cross in my place for my sin. 
I want to turn from ruling my own life and I want to come under your good reign and rule where there is peace and joy and the promise of hope forevermore. Lord, others of us, we'd have to admit that there are areas of our lives where we have been reigning and ruling, where we have not laid them down before you. Please forgive us for that. Please help us to lay every single area of our life down before you, to see your kingdom come in our lives, to do all that we do for your kingdom and your glory. And Lord, we pray for that for us as a church. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to open ourselves up, to be used by you in our community for, you, for the good of others and for the glory of your name. And we pray this in the name of our good King, the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, would you stand for this blessing, this benediction, this doxology, this praise to our King from 1 Timothy. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.